considers great things happening in Australia. I think in many ways underrepresented country from the point of view of what we do at a health and medical research and innovation level. And I think for every researcher out there who's unsure of what they want to do, I think I'm a living walking example of take a punt, talk to lots of different people, try lots of different things, and a whole new pathway can emerge. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Dr. James Dromey was supposed to be a farmer in County Cork, Ireland, but apparently cows were not his destiny, even though he was the family's only son. Instead, he has become a London-educated Irishman who's married to a Belgian and lives in Melbourne, Australia, where he's a local and national leader in pediatric medical research and digital health innovation. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shewitz. And I'm Lisa Soonan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, Lisa. Yes, Dave, you're such a weirdo. Yes. From you, that's chutzpah. <laughs> um, but speaking of chutzpah, and where they might not have any, um, <laughs> you, you just got back from Australia, didn't you? What was the best part of your trip? Well, the best part of my trip was probably working with uh, people like James, who we're about to hear from. Um, but the very best part of my trip, honestly, was getting to pet and feed a kangaroo named Crystal, which was pretty fun. I know, it was really cool. You could do kangaroo. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, wait, we also like hanging out with Einar, right? Hung out with Einar Sawyer, who is in one of our show two, I think, maybe. About yeah, it. yeah. And uh, hung out with uh, James Dromey and his group at, at the Melbourne Children's Research Institute. Hung out with uh, my friends at Ant Health. Uh, it was a lovely... Uh, that's a great, it's like a kind of an annual tradition for you, right? Well, if you count two years in a row, yes, it counts. that's exactly it right. Counts. That's fantastic. <laughs> So uh, let's get on with the uh, Australia Focus here. Um, we're delighted today to have James Dromey on the show. James, so great to have you. Fantastic. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Delighted to be here. Uh, particularly given that it's crack of dawn, we're delighted to, to have you here. How is it in the future, by the way? <laughs> the future looks bright and rosy. It's 37 degrees uh, this weekend in Melbourne, so prepare <laughs> for some heat. And I'd like to say, Lisa, also, yeah, also really? we're looking for three years in a row, right? So next year, we're going to have you back out. Yeah. Three Pete. Three Pete. Three Pete. Yeah, so let's say now, you were, you're born in Ireland. You're an Irish guy in Australia. The slang transition alone has got to be rough. Uh, yeah, look, it was an interesting transition in the, in the first instance um, coming to Australia, although I had a bit of a head start having left Ireland to study um, in London. So where I learned that I had to slow down uh, my my pace of speech a little so that people <laughs> could understand me. Um, and so with, with that transition in hand, uh, I, yeah, we we came to Australia, and there were a few there were a few interesting learning experiences in the first instance. I think one that really stands out for me is when we were in a uh, maybe my first week here. We went for a drink on the Friday, and uh, we were planning to head off uh, afterwards to another bar. And someone said, oh, look, we've all got bikes, you know, we'll, we'll cycle. Uh, I said, oh, am I, am I probably there? He said, no, no, I'll drink you. I said, I'm sorry, what exactly does that mean? So they did explain afterwards where that is essentially giving someone a ride on the crossbar of your bike, um, which is a very friendly way of, I guess, offering to transport you as opposed to what I originally thought that they were actually asking me. <laughs> There were there were a few there were a few cultural barriers, yes. So you have to learn to say crikey. Do you say crikey now? Uh, yes, crikey every now and again, but not not too much. Not too much. <laughs> so you grew up in County Cork, Ireland, which is the last port of the Titanic and the uh, site of the sinking of the Louisa Tanya. Um, 
do you <laughs> I mean Australia is a real uh, a water a water place you live uh, near the water I know um, how do you uh, take advantage of it these days do you yeah absolutely so we live about 10 minutes or so from from the bay here in, in Melbourne um, and yes that's absolutely absolutely beautiful although most people would say that the beaches in Melbourne don't quite stack up to uh, you know the real the real beaches in in places like WA, uh, where you've got fine grains of sand stretching for miles and miles. But absolutely, water and 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 the sea is real part of the culture in Australia. I mean, it's quite funny as an Irish guy, where not many of us, you know, especially in my generation, really truly did swimming lessons seriously. Here, everyone's in the pool from from you know pretty much from when they're born. Um, and obviously, a track record of many Olympic swimmers where. You know, in Ireland, that's that's not necessarily the case. So we did have a very, very, very high-profile Olympic swimmer in one instance, but uh, that didn't finish all that well. <laughs> so I know you broke every rule in the book by being the only son in a farm family and deciding to leave to go to university. How did that affect your family? How did they feel about that? Oh, I think my family are super happy and super proud. Um, my my dad, in particular, I think, uh, you know, at the at the time, I remember very well when I was. You know, 16, about 16, going on 17 years old, having a conversation around, you know, what what next? I was, you know, since I was very young, we were actually all myself and my three sisters were all very hands on on the on the on, on the family business on on the dairy farm, um, and I I recall, you know, basically my dad saying, look, I really want you to to go to university, see what it's like. Uh, he didn't have that opportunity, he, you know, finished school when he was 12, but managed to build a successful business. Um, he said, "You know, you've got to, you've got to experience it. You can always come back to the farm." Um, and I think that was really forward thinking for for him. Uh, you know, I was the only son in a dairy farm. Traditionally, I'd be the one that would stay back. Um, and he'd put a lot of effort into building up this what well, was a very very successful business. And uh, he was willing to put that to the side to to give me a chance at something a bit different that he didn't that he didn't get a go of. And reality is, once I um, once I hit the big smoke. Uh, you know, experienced uh, a big city, uh, a university life, the you know the diversity of cultures and learning, um, and the fun associated with that. I think probably took me all of a uh, three weeks to realize that uh, the farm was a distant memory. So you portray yourself as kind of a take it as it comes kind of guy, not a big planner. Uh, and so I think you went off, to, or believe you went off to university without really a plan for your future, but ended up drawn to science uh, because of the the impact of a great teacher there. Tell us a little bit about that and what drew you to the sciences. Yes, yeah, we had um, a fantastic teacher uh, in in my high school years. Um, fantastic in two ways. One was, you know, this is a class of 21, essentially. The whole year was 21 people in this country school. So it was pretty intense, intense learning, and particularly when we had a teacher, um, a science teacher like we had, where... She absolutely scared everyone into working. Um, I mean, this lady was just so, so full on and so intense. I recall some, you know, many classmates and probably myself included, at some point being brought to tears because we didn't know something. Um, just, just really tough. But she made it really interesting. So she kept made sure we were in line, we were awake, we knew what we were doing. Um, but also, you know, opened up this whole, this whole world of you know, kind of intrigue in many ways. Um, I was also very interested, in, though, in, in business, and maybe that came from that farming background, um, where essentially, you know, we were, we were running that, that family business, and, and had a lot of experience in 
working hand in hand my my uh, my family there. Um, so I was intrigued by this axis between business and science. Well, I guess what I was wondering is, um, as we sort of get to how you integrated the two, within science, um, I, I kind of was particularly wondering how you wound up in immunology. I mean, when I, when I was an undergrad, um, I think even in high school, to tell you what a nerd I was, um, I, uh, I guess in college, I worked uh, with Charlie Janeway and, you know, one of the, you know, sort of an early cellular immunologist. Uh, yeah, yeah, tremendous person. I did my undergraduate research with both Charlie and Susumu Tanagawa. So really c- closely connected with immunology, and I can appreciate why many, many reasons why it might be so exciting. But I'm curious what drew you to it. Yeah, so, um, look, I studied microbiology at university with general science and then, and then kind of specialized, very specialized in microbiology. And that's because the stream in microbiology was very strong in the university, uh, University College Galway, so on the west of Ireland where I went. Um, and the, and in my third year there, they, they had introduced a, a module in immunotherapeutics. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a professor Gosling who, who championed this and, and I remember saying, oh, not sure what this is. I'll I'll go along and have a have a listen. And just from the get go, I found it intriguing. And I think mainly because maybe I felt that it was just still such a young field. There was so much unknown about it. So that kind of that, that was really curious. But also, it just it just played such a critical role in well who we are, but how we survive. Um, and this kind of frontline defence. Um, and and then the, the the possibility that it could turn on itself. Uh, I found really intriguing. It's so captivating, right? I mean, how it both underlies, you know, it's so integrative, right? It, 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 there's so many diseases. Like, it seems like half of what people are afflicted with stem from sort of an overactive immune system uh, causing a range of different conditions. And then the other half of the things are where you wish your immune system was working um, even more effectively to sort of root out some of the cancers, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and I felt that, you know, we, we hadn't even unleashed the power of, of, of the knowledge of this thing, you know, what if we could, as, as we're saying now. And this was before it was all sexy, right? Like now everyone thinks, oh, you know, immuno-oncology, it's like the big thing. But before it was the big thing, it had it had zero traction, right? I mean, so you were really in early on this if you were seeing the potential. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's brilliant to see the, the, the progress being made. And I think that's what I found really exciting also is that you know, we were starting in, in many ways from a baseline. There was so much that could be achieved in this, um, as opposed to, you know, biochemistry and microbiology, where obviously there are still huge advances, but the field was so raw. Um, and, and look, you know, I, I, having done that module at University College in Galway, I, um, I said, you know, fourth year of my university, I would, I would really like to spend all of my time working in immunology. And so I applied to... I basically finished my degree in um, King's College in London, uh, who had a strong immunology program. And luckily enough, when I just threw my hat in the ring, they offered me a position. And so I spent my fourth year, moved to London, spent my fourth year there, uh, my final year of university, and, and specialized in immunology. And that was, that was just a fantastic experience. So you spent your time in London, but after a series of events, ended up in Melbourne instead um, how did that happen, first of all, and, and what what led you to stay? Yeah, yeah. So this is the story of my life in many ways, right? Yeah. Uh, no plan. Just just kind of take it, take it as it comes. Very emergent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know I'll, I'll get a good story around exactly. It was all a big plan at the end, right? Um, so... So, yeah, when I was in, um, when I was in London um, and specialised in immunology, 
the, the next course, the next question was, you know, what do I do next? Do I want an academic career? Do I want to work in industry? And I was still kind of, I had this, this sense of business and this pull towards business still there. And so I was talking to a lot of people from farm industry in that instance saying, you know, what's it like to work in, what's it like to work in pharma? Um, and everyone said back you know, many different things, but everyone said back, look, it's really worthwhile doing a PhD. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a lifelong skill that you'll have. You're clearly passionate about the area. And so I decided I'd do a, a PhD in immunology and stayed at King's College in London to do that, all focused on, in this case, um, autoimmune disease and type 1 diabetes, really understanding, um, in particular, regulatory T-cells, which was uh, another new emerging area within immunology. So how uh, how your immune system can help regulate itself so it doesn't attack your, your own body. I mean, that, that's a concept that's been really evolving, right? I mean, like I feel like that, that's sort of been rebranded, right? The regulatory cells? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, at the time, people didn't, many people didn't believe it. They thought that this was a, a made-up cell population. Exactly, uh, um, yeah. And I think maybe, maybe it's the, uh, the rebellious Irishman in me, but I found that really <laughs> intriguing. And, you know, <laughs> hey, let's, let's, let's figure out, let someone stand up for these T-cells, right? Um, well, that's what I'm saying. It's really courageous to kind of go into that because there was a lot of um, skepticism saying, oh, is the whole thing just um, uh, whatever the Irish word for malarkey is. But <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be it. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. In a way, you don't have anything to lose in a PhD. And I know that's a big thing to say, but it's just so early on in your career. And perhaps for me, it was even more different because I didn't see myself being a long-term academic. And so perhaps I was more willing to to take a, a chance. Um, uh, and look, to answer your question, Lisa, how did I get to how did I get to Melbourne? During that time, I obviously saw work that people were doing from across the world. So one of the greatest things of the PhD was actually opening my eyes up to people who were doing similar work uh, globally. And there were a few groups that, that caught my eye. You know, when you when you when you were going to conferences um, and seeing people present their their work from all over the world. Um, and one group was in was in Melbourne, a guy called um, Professor Lillian Harrison. Um, and actually, again, by chance, no real plan, I kind of thought, oh, you know, we could we could travel a bit. I'd met my wife. Uh, she, as you said in the introduction, she was Belgian. We said we'd travel a little. Um, and I reached out to Len Harrison one day by email, just cold. Um, and by chance, he was in um, he was in Paris that weekend uh, attending a conference. We made a time to meet, and as I, as I always joke with him, you know, we met in a cafe in Paris, and the rest is history. <laughs> of all the gin joints. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he offered me, a, after a bit of discussion, of course, he offered me a postdoc, and that was, that was how I came to, to be at Melbourne and, uh, in Melbourne, and just we've fallen in love with the place, the people, the environment. I love the medical research sector here and the opportunity we have. Um, and I've become... Uh, an Australian citizen, as have my as has my wife, and we've got three uh, very Australian kids. <laughs> so you guys, so when you went to Melbourne and you're working with Len Harrison, you started working closer to the translational side, right, between the lab and the clinic. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely, and that was something that really attracted me um, in Len's work. Um, so he was a. a uh, a clinician himself um, ran the clinic at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, um, focused on immunology, and I was really interested in that. Okay, it's, it's, I find science really interesting, but how can we have impact? How can we, we how can we create impact? 
And immunology lends itself to that almost more than any other singular area of science and medicine where you can, you almost, if you're not working at that interface, something's wrong almost. So it's really, uh, it's kind of like a great fit of a domain and um, expertise. Yeah, absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And, you know, it was, again, this whole new world opening up where, um, you know, the use of immunology within within clinic was raw, right? It was, it was, um, it was very basic. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I was looking at when I did my postdoc with, with Lane was, yeah, he had um, built a whole career in understanding type 1 diabetes and the immunological basis of uh, the development of type 1 diabetes. And so there I started looking at the role of regulatory T cells and using, you know, particular T cell populations and behaviors as biomarkers of how disease could be progress- progressing. And also if we intervened, uh, using that as a surrogate marker for whether a uh, treatment is working or not. And and that was, it's, you know, you're super exciting because you feel, wow, all the stuff that I've learned over the last few years, you know, is actually now going to have an impact in, in a clinical setting. And that, and that was really rewarding. So Len Harrison really became a key mentor to you and, and key to your ultimate destiny. What, did, what was it you saw in him and what is it he saw in you? And how did having a mentor change your experience? Yes, yeah, he did absolutely become a key mentor. Um no, I think the teacher's answer, what I saw in him and what he saw in me, <clears throat> maybe he saw in me this guy that he was just going to take a, a bit of a punt on who, who didn't have a very good plan, and let's see how it pans out. Um, <laughs> for, for for me, uh, look, it was um, it was someone who was really had a very high reputation in the field. Um, I liked his I liked his values. You know, he he was very passionate about the work that he did and really wanted to make a difference. And you could sense that the minute you were in a in his lab, the minute we were in his um, in his group meetings, he had a real he had a real drive to make a difference, and that was and that was something I think that, that really cut through everything we were doing, kind of that overarching bigger purpose. But also, what Len taught me was um, not to be constrained by the system, and perhaps this is because he was a, a clinical guy, so he had a you know a, a, a kind of a, a parallel career path, I guess, as a clinician and not just as a scientist, but. You know, science is a pretty tough business, right? As as a researcher, where you got to apply for for grants, you're spending probably thirty percent of your time applying for them. You got to, depending on where you are, between a ten and twenty five percent chance of success. Um, and he was saying, look, don't be constrained by it. You got to think big. You got to think differently. Take take risks. And that really resonated with me. I I really enjoyed that aspect. So there are things that I took, you know, took out with me um, in in my career from there. So you eventually still were were pulled to business, and you had, as you've described it, a brutal exposure to the Australian biotech world. Tell us about that experience. Uh, yes. So um, while I was doing my postdoc with with, uh, with Len, and I spoke to Len Harrison a lot about you know next next career steps for myself. Um, I was very intrigued by the biotech sector in Australia, and and really with a very minimal understanding of. Now, how companies are set up, and why would you set them up? And, um, and there was a uh, another group leader within um, Len's department, a guy called Bob Anderson, who was a, again a, a clinician, a gastroenterologist. But it was, I mean, this guy was big. He's, I don't know, six, seven, I think. Um, he thought big, uh, and our joke was everyone looked up to Bob, right? Um, being six, being six, seven, uh, and so. 
you know, in speaking with Bob, we used to, I used to have a, a lot of, a lot of discussions with Bob Anderson. We'd, we'd have tea together and he'd tell me about, you know, the work that he's doing in, in celiac disease, um, another autoimmune condition and actually something that's very, um, prevalent in, in Ireland and something that I, during my degree in London, I actually wrote a, a big piece on. So it was something I was familiar with. And we used to be chatting about this and he had big ambition to develop a vaccine for celiac disease. Um, and in those discussions, again, that kind of water cooler tea room discussion, you know, we were talking about how we might come up with a, uh, you know, um, how he might come up with this vaccine. And he, he had raised some money to help him do it. And I was intrigued by how did all of this work. And eventually Bob offered me um, a, a role, a postdoc, um, which I clearly navigated well with Len. He saw that there was good benefit in that. Uh, and I stayed a year with, with Bob, and he just went on a company developing a vaccine for celiac disease. And it was a brutal exposure because while the science was comfortable, uh, I knew, knew the role I was playing, you know, the, the whole program of work was really at the mercy of uh, funding. And we found, as usual, that that funding ran out quicker than expected. Um, and it was a pretty tough time, I think, for, for, for Bob in particular, in understanding actually what does it take to, to, to bring this thing from a discovery and, and still some discovery going on, but to, to try and become a product. So I would say it was pretty, it was pretty brutal in that you were, you were, you were realized you're at the mercy in many ways of who was going to give you money and, you know, timelines needed to be delivered. And if we were going to remain competitive in this, um, in this market, we had to keep things going. Yeah, I mean, the flip side, right, is that it's, you know, academics write papers and go, oh, this has significant clinical implications. This might lend itself to translation. And it's easier to write that as a last sentence of a paper than to actually affect the translation, right? Absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly agree. And, and uh, the common thing we see in the last line of the paper, right? Um, and so seeing that journey and, and living that journey, but at the same time, again, it, it sparked interest. So, I found it int- I found it so interesting in how you had to bring all these skill sets together to to try and get this thing you know up and out of a research environment and it, it exposed me to a whole range of new new disciplines and new jobs and and all of a sudden it became it became very clear that there's a whole world of opportunity out there um, as a researcher someone with a research background and it's funny because on reflection I used to get really frustrated. Uh, you know, when you're thinking about what's the next step as a researcher beyond academia, what's the next step? Because we didn't, you know, there's no real clear structure there, you know, what do you do next? And I used to look at lawyers and doctors and go, God, they're lucky, you know, you start off in a, uh, a medical degree or, you know, you do a legal degree, and there's a very clear career structure in how you kind of progress. Until I actually saw, heck, it's a huge opportunity. We can actually, we can become whatever we want. Um <laughs> There's so much more you can do. It's just you've got to be aware of what it is. And so I think the mantra in many ways for me is that I've learned, I've learned a lot through experience yeah. and, and kind of, I guess, less on trying to do degrees to, to navigate my, my path and just get out there and, 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 and see what it's like and, and build a network and be exposed. Yeah, speaking of that, James, I mean, you went from that experience to tech transfer. You know, again, kind of a lucky break finding, you know, running into a guy who... Um, gave you that opportunity to move into Trek transfer role. And that has been really where, or the start of the, the transition you've made to get yourself all the way to, to MCRI. Um, can you explain what your biggest learning was from that transition 
from the the R and D translational, uh, you know, biotech world that you'd been in, and then f- to the the places you you ended up, and particularly now MCRI. Yeah, so um, I think this is uh, it, yeah, this is almost in a way my favorite part of uh, let's say my career. It's my favorite step in in my whole career. Um, so I uh, very much your point, Lisa. I worked with a guy called Julian Clark, who became a real, in my ways, a real mentor to to me, and, and taught me many things in that in that capacity in tech transfer. And I'd say that what sparked my interest in that originally was um, in just speaking to Julian around again career paths. You know, he used to be up on the top floor of of, uh, of the uh, of the building, and I discovered afterwards that I was one of many who were walking up there late in the evening, going, Julian, I was kind of thinking about a career beyond academia, um, which was a little frowned upon in that organization at that time. Um, so it was a little bit like a confession box. I was back in Ireland, you know. Uh, you know, forgive me, forgive me, Julian, I'm thinking of something else. <laughs> um, and so, More common than you'd think. <laughs> you know, he, he really, again, opened up these possibilities. And so, you know, through that experience in working in tech transfer, which I did for about four and a half years there, um, was really thinking, thinking bigger, thinking beyond the grant and the lifespan of the grant and that's all the funding that you might have, thinking about how do we actually get you know, some of these amazing discoveries and this intellectual property up, out, and beyond the walls of, of the research institute, um, and being, being much more um, open-minded and looking at partners we can, and, and skills we can bring in along the way. And, and I really enjoyed that. And, um, and so you know, maybe after nine years at, at uh, the Walter and Liza Hall Institute, where I did a postdoc and then worked in tech transfer, I, I started it at um, Murdoch Children's Research Institute, or MCRI. Um, and that was in about August 2012. And there I was heading up tech transfer at MCRI. And it was, a, in many ways, a whole new area for MCRI, which, again, I found um, really interesting and really challenging in that we had to build in as part of the narrative that we might want to commercialize some of these these findings and technologies that are happening at the Institute. So you were there a brief time uh, a week when the COO, the chief operating officer, recruited you left, and you at first chose not to take that role, which was offered to you because you were worried about being too focused on process and too inwardly facing. But in the end, you did, in fact, accept that role, the chief operating officer. Now you lead a, a large team there at the Murdoch, which includes tech transfer, digital innovation, a variety of other things, everything really related to, to the Research Institute. Did it turn out that you liked that process and organization? Did it turn out you had a knack for managing people and doing the things in business that you really hadn't been trained to do? Yeah, so I'm not sure I'd necessarily say that I like process, but I've certainly learned the value of it. Um, I used to almost take pride in being, you know, this kind of be this innovative, creative thinker who challenged the norm who you know almost rebelled against process and um, you know during my few years uh, in tech transfer and MCRI I you know I got more and more exposed to that COO role um, at the institute and worked very closely with a uh, with the with um, a guy called John Bacon uh, who was COO for most of the time that I was working in tech transfer there um, and in in seeing it you know I think I told you Lisa once you know the the story where. When I was working in tech transfer and MCRI, the, the meeting that I dreaded the most uh, every quarter was the risk management meeting because I just found it was so deflating. How can we think of absolutely everything that could possibly go wrong and then rate it and look at ways we can mitigate it? And in, in, the, in many ways, I think it was a lack of appreciation for the bigger picture thinking around future-proofing the Institute. 
And so, so now in, in the role, I actually, I quite enjoy those meetings. I've, I've really, as CEO, really enjoyed the diversity of you're doing this externally facing where we have marketing, comms, tech transfer, and internally facing things like um, HR, IT, and, and finance, and trying to figure out how do all these things fit together to create that, in a way, try to create that perfect environment for the researchers in our organization to be the best that they can possibly be and have to create the greatest impact they possibly can. Um, and it's something that I'm really interested in, about, interested in and very passionate about is that magic, magic mix, so to speak, to, you know, at a particular given point in time to really allow, uh, you know, that research to, to, to shine. Let me ask you a question about that exact point that relates to also a, a, a book I recently read. Um, how, what do you see when you're trying to you talk about this ideal mix? Where do, how much of, of getting things right in your role as uh, sort of managing all of this do you attribute to culture and how much do you attribute to structure? How much do you know kind of having the right processes in place, the right organizational size and components, and how much do you contribute to having uh, sort of the shared cultural, whatever that means, understanding? Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting very much on the cultural side of things. Um, I think I think you can have the the world's best process, but uh, people people don't like necessarily like process, and you can, and people won't. I've heard that can be true. <laughs> <laughs> and people and people won't won't use it. Um, and so for me, it's it's all about the culture. Um, you know, I look at I look at a lot of organizations. Uh, you know, I've read a few books about Google, for example, and you know, obviously every organization is different. I'm very interested in. Um, I find the sporting industry very interesting at the moment uh, because the more and more I look at what we do as a business, we're actually a talent business. Um, you know, our you know, if we get the best possible researchers who align with what we want to achieve in, um, and we create an environment that allows them to absolutely be at their best then magic happens. Um, and that comes, and, you know, the magic will only happen if we have that, you know, the old adage of a champion team versus a team of champions. And so getting, you know, creating this culture and environment that allows, that allows the, the researchers to be their best, there's clear alignment of what we're trying to achieve. And, we're, and in a way, the process disappears. It's just, it it's, should be streamlined and easy. It becomes part of just how we do stuff. Um, I, I, I was uh, joking a few times with, a, with some people here. I've become a big basketball fan, mainly because my kids are all basketball mad. Um, growing up in Ireland, basketball is not, generally not a big thing. Um, and a shout-out to Einar Sawyer here, uh, who really got me into being a Golden State Warriors fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been drawing a lot of parallels with the Golden State Warriors. No, it was going well until about three matches ago, right? So I think they've lost three in a row now. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, everybody has bad G- Games, day. we call them here, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of that differential, so you spend a lot of time exchanging ideas and work with the U.S. And um, what are the biggest differences between Australia and the U.S. when it comes to innovation and leadership in the areas that you focus your energy? Yes, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I find it really interesting the uh, the interaction with the U.S. I mean, for me, the kind of big obvious differences are I find the U.S. are, are much bigger and bolder in in their ambition and their voice. So. Um, you know, even when we go along to conferences in the U.S., we all find it really interesting that people aren't afraid to stand up there, be bold about what they're trying to achieve as a as a small startup, and also, you know, be proud and be bold and, and ask for plenty of money to help them to help support and do it. Um, I think Australians are much more modest. Um, I think we've got some big ambitions, but we don't have 
we don't have that same kind of willingness to just get up and say, you know, I'm going to change the world and I'm going to need $100 million to do it. We tend to do things in a much leaner fashion um, and build it up, you know, bit by bit by bit, almost afraid to, to, to stick our head up too high and say, you know, all right, this is it. We're going to go for it. And maybe it's the maybe it's the fear of failure and the culture that sits around that if you fail, if you've been big and loud and you failed, you know, you might be uh, you might be given a hard time. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a dare to be great mindset out here. Um, uh, you know, sort of um, you know, sort of go big or go home. Um, but for all of that, it seems that Australia has been really on the map, um, and uh, you know, very prominently in in sort of the area of genetics and integrating genetics and phenotype. Um, uh, in a way that I'm not sure we even appreciate how 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 all the work that's been done there. How do you uh, how do you sort of see that? Do you feel like there's been that the work that Australia has done in, in that specific interface is underappreciated or is becoming appreciated, recognized in the U.S. and more broadly? And how have you been so successful? There? Um, yeah, to look at a very interesting observation. I mean, there is amazing stuff happening here in Australia, and. A challenge we have as Australians is that look, we're at the other end, of the other side of the world, or as we like to say, everyone else is at the other side of our world. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it, it poses a real challenge, right? So one of the things we we often face, even from an innovation take transfer perspective, is when you're talking to potential partners and they say, why, why Australia? You know, I can I can just drive down the road to a Stanford or a Harvard or a Berkeley. Don't forget Berkeley. <laughs> Go Bears. Yeah, yeah, right. Or, or Berkeley, of course. Why would uh, Why would I need to go to Australia? But, you know, to your point, David, there's, you know, some amazing things happening here. And, and genomics is a great example. Um, you know, we have got a national initiative in, in genomics for, where 85 partners have been brought together to look at how we implement genomics into healthcare. Um, so really a genomic medicine piece. And what this is, in many ways, it's a health services research project. You know, what does it take to, to you know, what do we need to change within the, the healthcare system so that, you know, um, genomics, whether that be exome or, or whole genome sequencing, is a routine part of, of, of healthcare. And, you know, that was done on the back of, so NCRI spearheads that effort. Um, so uh, our CEO, Professor Catherine North, who's a clinical geneticist, really really spearheaded that and brought all, brought all these parties together. Um, and what, what we've really seen is that there's been this huge, um, you know, joint collaborative effort now in, in bringing genomics into um, into everyday medicine, uh, and I don't, I don't think we see that, uh, you know, in, in a, on a full national scale, um, really in, in many other countries. Um, and in fact, uh, it was used. So that's that initiative called Australian Genomics, and that was used as a, a kind of a, a, a demonstration project for the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health. So that, that national uh, initiative around shared learnings in genomics and health. Look, the other, the other one is in. In um, health technology innovation, so digital health in, in particular, uh, you know, um, myself and a, a, a colleague, Bronwyn LeGrice, uh, who's a venture capitalist by background, um, you know, put together this idea that we wanted to have a national initiative in collaboration around digital health, mainly because Australia is too small. You know, we're two percent of the, you know, of, of the of the global economy. We've, we're a big country with big ambitions, but a small population, and so. How do we maximize that opportunity? And so we put together this um, initiative called Ant Health that Lisa's been very involved with, so Australia's National Digital Health. And that's been very much focused on how do we empower small companies who have some proof of concept, early proof of concept, establish themselves and, and create this pathway of product development and, and clinical, clinical validation to get their, 
products out onto the market. So what we're doing as a you know as a as a nation, I think, is is quite powerful. And building all first strength in, in research and in the healthcare system. Uh, that's great. Thank you so much for, for that thought. And I think the last thought I'm going to ask you for is, okay, Ireland, Australia, which country knows how to party better? Oh, that's tough. Um, I still go Ireland. Definitely Ireland. Ireland, huh? And why is that? Uh, I just think uh, I think the people who really know how to party in Australia generally have Irish blood. Um <laughs> <laughs> So, so Ireland, Ireland's there at the core somewhere. So what's That's your good. favorite libation? I've spent so much time in Australia with all the beer there, but also all of the uh, all the great options in Ireland. What have you? What have you? What what what's your number one? What's your go-to? You know, it's funny. Um, as an Irish guy, I actually don't drink much. I really very rarely drink. <laughs> I don't know what to <laughs> so say much about for that. that. There you go. All right. Well, well James, uh, I'm, just, d- I'm just killing the conversation. Yeah, really. I know they just destroyed all our stereotypes. <laughs> um, it's been wonderful talking to you today. Um, really uh, enjoy the work I do with you guys in Australia, and I appreciate so much your waking up at this hour of the day, uh, even though it is tomorrow, to talk to us uh, on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Today's guest, James Dromey, was speaking to us from the future in Melbourne, Australia. Such a terrific guy. The humor of an Irishman and the casual ease of an Australian, but with a PhD. It's a pretty good combo. That's not a knife. That's a knife. <laughs> he's, such a, he's such a wonderful guy to hang out with. And it is true, he's a huge basketball fan. When I arrived at his home for a barbecue, or a Barbie, I guess we should call it, uh, last week, he... Um, was wearing his Warriors jersey, so you know, I guess it's for real. Einer's, but yeah, yeah, Einer's really had the impact. Yeah, I was, <laughs> you know, sorry we didn't get him to weigh in on it because you know the I don't on the um, uh, the, the the beer question because uh, that that's a pressing issue that we'll have to get resolved. I, in future I show. guess this will burn on. Well, you can follow David Shaywitz writing at Forbes and the occasional Wall Street Journal Review, and you can follow Lisa's writing at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to GE Ventures for their sponsorship today. GE Ventures multiple paths to big impact. Please remember to rate us on iTunes and help others discover the show. Good day, mate. <laughs> Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Good day. Good day.